Well, I want to begin with the backstory to Psalm 51, 2 Samuel 11, the Israelites were going up to war against the Ammonites. It was typical for kings to go out to war, but David decided he'd sit this one out. It was the spring of the year, and he's busy sitting on his couch. While he's sitting on the couch, he walks up on his rooftop, he gets up and notices a really beautiful woman, uh, Bathsheba by name, one of the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men, and he becomes interested in her. And he asks about her, inquires about her. He actually finds out that this is a wife, the wife of one of his mighty men. And instead of stopping right there, he pursues this. And so we asked her to come over. She comes over and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And she tells him, indeed, I am pregnant. So David, instead of repenting of his sin here, tries to cover things up. And he goes for a cover up plan A. Here's plan A. I'm going to get Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife, and then he will think that this child is his. So he sends to Joab his commander in the field and says, hey, send Uriah the Hittite back. Uriah comes back. David asks him how the war is going. If you were Uriah, you might have thought this was a really strange conversation. Why are you asking me how the war is going? What am I doing back here? My men are out fighting. What's going on? And so David at the end of it says, you know what? Go home, wash your feet. David releases him so that Uriah the Hittite can go sleep with his wife Bathsheba and the cover-up can begin, but Uriah can't do it. He's so loyal to King David. He's so loyal to his men. He says, how can I do this when the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. 2 Samuel 11. 11. So David spent the next couple days trying to convince him otherwise. One night he actually got Uriah drunk in the hopes that his convictions would uh, flag and Uriah indeed still wouldn't do it. Cover up plan A failed. Now we've got cover up plan B. Now David has to kill Uriah or so he thinks. He still won't repent. So David wrote a letter to Joab telling Joab, hey, when Uriah gets there, put him on the front line. And when he's on the front line where they're fight the fighting is the fiercest, I want you to withdraw so that he dies. That's how I want this to go down. Uriah actually carries his own death letter back to Joab. Obviously, he didn't open it. He gave it to Joab. Indeed, this is what happens to Uriah. He dies on the battle and cover up is complete, right? No. Because at the end of 2 Samuel 11, after all this drama of David's sin, going deeper and deeper and deeper, we're told in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to tell him a story, and the story went like this. David still didn't get it, but he'll get it in just a minute after he hears this story. There were two men, David, Nathan says. There's a rich guy and a poor guy. The rich guy had tons of flocks and herds, very, very wealthy. The poor guy had just one little ewe lamb. This ewe lamb grew up in his house. He thought of the ewe lamb like one of his own daughters. He ate off his plate. He drank out of his own cup. He fell asleep in this poor man's arms. That deer was this lamb to the poor man. Well, one day, the rich man had a guest that came to his house. This guest showed up. You're supposed to give him a meal and entertain him. So the rich man, instead of going out to his flocks and herds, 
walks over to the poor man's house, steals his lamb, kills it, and serves it to the guest. And David becomes greatly enraged. David is beyond upset. David is ticked off. And David said, as the Lord lives, 2 Samuel 12, 5, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And do you want to know what Nathan said to King David next? You're that guy. You're the man. You're the man, David, that you are so angry with. You're the man who had numerous wives, who had this incredible life, and who went and stole from Uriah, his wife, this faithful servant of yours, in order to serve your needs, in order to serve your desires. You're the man. And after Nathan told David what was going to transpire, some of the judgments that would take place in his own lineage, David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, finally said the one thing that we probably wished he would have said or he would have wished he had said right after he even took the first look at Bathsheba and lusted after her with his eyes. He said, I've sinned against the Lord, finally. And Psalm 51 is the fruit of that. It's David writing about repentance, what repentance looks like. Now, Charles Spurgeon wrote the treasury of David, uh, all in the Psalms. And when he came to Psalm 51, he said, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? I think what Spurgeon is getting at is probably what every expositor, what every teacher, wherever they are, who teaches on Psalm 51 feels that it's a psalm that's almost more felt than telt. It's a psalm that we can read and the words on the page are just so clear that they almost don't need explanation. We just, we just get it when we read it. Nonetheless, I want us to notice just five things tonight about what genuine repentance involves. What does it look like? What is it involved? So first, it, it's, it's based entirely on God's mercy, genuine repentance is. Secondly, it acknowledges and owns sin. Third, it seeks atonement. Four, it seeks inner cleansing. And five, it renews us to help others and to praise God. So first, genuine repentance is based entirely on God's mercy. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. So he, David is asking God, have mercy on me. He's coming to God because he knows God is merciful. And notice why he asks God to extend him mercy. He gives two reasons. God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. That's reason number one. Your chesed, your covenant love. And secondly, according to your abundant mercy or compassion. So have mercy on me, God, because you are a God who's full of mercy. The plea here is simply this. God, I don't deserve to be forgiven. Don't have mercy on me because I'm sorrowful enough. Don't have mercy on me because I feel bad enough. Have mercy on me because indeed you're a God of mercy. So treat me according to who you are as a God who's merciful and loving. If God were not a God of mercy, but only a God of strict justice, we would be crazy to repent. 
but beloved, our God's a God of mercy. And David pleads that right from the start because he knows God loves a contrite heart. I just want to mention one thing before we move on. When we're convicted and become aware of our sin, beloved, it can be so helpful to just think about the mercy of God, how incredibly compassionate he is toward his people, how much he pities us, that can drive us to repentance. R.C. Sproul put it this way, God doesn't convict people in order to destroy them. God convicts people in order to heal them. And if we know that that's why our God convicts us and how merciful it is, it can lead us into repentance and open that door wide open. Secondly, genuine repentance acknowledges and owns sin. So verse 1 David says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David heaps up words for sin here. He doesn't say, hey, I made a mistake. He's not blaming his parents. He's not blaming God. David is owning his own deeds as his own. This wasn't just a personality problem. This wasn't just a little slip up on my part. This was sin. In fact, he so gets it and so owns it as sin that he uses three different words for sin. Uh, Verse one, transgression. Verse two, iniquity. Verse two, sin. He uses three different Hebrew words to describe what he did. The word transgression is the word that has to do with crossing a boundary and so committing rebellion. The word iniquity refers to the sin that comes as a result of our inner depravity. It's the same word he'll use down in verse 5 to describe his original sin at conception. And then the word sin has to do with missing the mark. doesn't matter what we aimed at. When the arrow flew, it missed the target of obedience to God. And so David uses each word he has access to to describe the depth of what he did. It's sin, it's rebellion, it's wicked, it's evil. Genuine repentance, beloved, doesn't make excuses for sin. It does not justify sin. It does not belittle sin or try to soft-pedal sin. Genuine repentance calls sin, sin. When we are repentant, we don't make excuses or use language which says it is only a mistake. We transgressed, we sinned, we rebelled, and David acknowledges his sin as that. David also owns his sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He sees it, he knows it. He's like, I I can see this clearly. I own it, it's my fault. And it's right in front of my face. I can't not deal with this. I have become convicted that I have sinned. And he understands the high offense of his sin. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. At first glance, it appears David is missing something. Why didn't he say he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all the people of Israel and his fighting force, his military, and Joab getting him involved in a, a murder plot? David realized that all sin is against God. All sin is breaking God's commandments. All sin is against God's image bearers. 
And sin against believers is sin against God's children. And he came to this realization, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. That indeed I've sinned against other people. He's not denying that. But what the greatest thing is, is in every step of the way, David said, God, I'm going to sin against you. I'm going to rebel against you. I'm going to break your commandments. I'm going to treat your people who belong to you and who are to be treated in a certain way. I'm going to rebel against that, and I'm going to sin against you by mistreating them. Every wrong thing we do is a sin against God, beloved. Everything. Every sin, whether in private or public, whether there's somebody noticeably hurt or not, all of it is sin against God. And David clears God of any wrongdoing in this. He says he doesn't charge God with being too harsh. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul actually picks this up in Romans chapter 3 and uses it to prove that indeed God is blameless in his judgments. He is always justified in his judgments against his people. And God has come against David to judge him. And David makes it very clear, Lord, I'm not blaming you for being harsh. I'm saying that I, indeed I've sinned against you. You're right. You're right in what you pronounced against me. And David owns the source of his sin as well. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David, he goes all the way back to his conception and he says something interesting, not that he was conceived somehow through sinful means as if his mom sinned in David's conception. That's not what he's saying at all. David's saying that at the time that I became first a fertilized egg, sperm met egg, and life was there, at that very moment, at my conception, I was sinful. It's what we call the doctrine of original sin. It's one of the texts we use to talk about, along with Ephesians 2 and others. That at the moment we come into this world, before we're even born, we as human beings are guilty in Adam, and with his corrupt nature, we indeed are already concocting how to sin. So again, David did not blame his circumstances or anybody else. He didn't even say, look, it was Adam's fault. <laughs> he said, it's my sin. I've had this problem ever since conception that I am sinful. It's true, beloved, that all of our sin comes to us from the inside. You know, it's amazing to watch the life of Jesus Christ, isn't it? To look at his trials, to look at his suffering, to look at the way he was persecuted and treated. If anyone had reason for sin, it would have been Jesus. But he had nothing unclean or sinful or dirty on the inside of him. He was perfect and pure. He never sinned. That tells us something about ourselves. Nobody can make us sin. No one can force us to sin. When we sin, we're the ones doing it. And that's what David gets. Lord, I wasn't compelled from the outside. This came from me. It's been part of my life ever since day one that indeed sin comes from inside of me. That's genuine repentance, an owning of sin. So third, genuine repentance seeks atonement for sin. So verses seven to nine, purge me with hyssop, David cries, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He uses the language, purge me with hyssop. And hyssop was used to spread the blood on the doorpost of the houses during the Passover night in Egypt, Exodus 12, 22. Hyssop was also used to dip in the blood of birds when a leper was to be cleansed in Leviticus 14. Hyssop was also used to cleanse someone who came into contact with a dead body. And the author of Hebrews speaks of hyssop this way, Hebrews 9 and verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So hyssop, purge me with hyssop. Is David crying, Lord, atone for my sins. Forgive my sins through the blood of a substitute. And he was looking to that future substitute, the one whom we look back to, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bled and died for us so that we could be washed clean of our sins and become, as David asked, whiter than snow. Wash me and I shall be white as snow. Genuine repentance, beloved, seeks forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and through nothing else. Our commitment to do better doesn't provide forgiveness. Our sorrow for sin doesn't provide forgiveness. Jesus' death on the cross is the only means by which we are forgiven of our sin. And that is so helpful in repentance. It's so easy when we feel sorrowful for our sin to forget to sit at Jesus' feet and be purged and be cleansed by his blood and be reminded how our sins are forgiven. It's so easy to not go there and to say, oh Lord, I'm really sorry for this. I'll do better next time. And then we end up in this really bad cycle of self-righteousness and pride that ends in despair when we fail again. Well, that God wants us to be going to Christ for forgiveness and to be finding our cleansing in Him. And then next, genuine repentance seeks not only atonement for our sin, but inward cleansing, verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Three things I want to highlight here. Clean heart, right spirit, willing spirit. That's what David requests of God. I want a clean heart. Give me a right spirit. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David is asking God to cleanse him his heart and motives so that he would no longer desire sin, but actually desire obedience and be a willing participant. Lord, I was on the roof that night or that afternoon and I wanted to sin. Make me so that I want to obey. Cleanse me on the inside. Lord, I messed up with Bathsheba and I became a willing participant in disobedience, trying to cover it up. Grant that I be a willing participant in obedience, 
Grant that I would repent of my sin and follow you. He realizes he needs heart change and the desire for inner cleansing from sin is a great mark of genuine repentance. R.C. Sproul put it this way, when there is true repentance, there is not only a desire to receive the mercy of God, but there's also a desire to be forgiven and cleansed from the stain of that sin, from guilt. True repentance wants to be delivered from our sins so that we don't continue to live in it and be stained by it. And you can hear that desire for inward cleansing when David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He may have been thinking about the whole, the, the Spirit of God that left Saul and he so realizes his need for inner cleansing. He said, Lord, whatever you do, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I need him to be working inside of me. I need inner cleansing. I need your help in this. I see how frail and how weak I'm prone to sin I am. So don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not remove me from your presence. Walk with me through this and cleanse me on the inside. And David so much realized the need for inner cleansing that, uh, that he said in verses 16 to 17, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But David's all for sacrifices. But he says, for me to just go offer a sacrifice without a heart that's broken by my sin and contrite is pointless. That's not pleasing to the Lord. So Lord, again, cleanse me that I would have a contrite heart, a heart that's repentant, broken by my sin, and a heart that loves you. Well, finally, genuine repentance renews us to help others and to praise God, verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. One of the greatest blessings of repentance is the fruit of a, of a heart that is renewed. And such a renewed heart desires two things, David mentions here, to help others. He wants to go teach others about the mercy of God and how incredible God's mercy is. And now he's experienced it. What a great teacher David will be. And the second thing David is committed to doing and wants to do when the joy of salvation is restored, is to sing to God and praise Him. There's something tremendous about going through the sorrow of repentance, the sorrow for sin, not a worldly sorrow, I can't believe I got caught, but a godly sorrow. Or Lord, I've, I've, I've sinned against you. I've hurt people. Lord, I've blown it. And my heart needs cleansing on the inside. There's something incredible about going through that. And the songs that come out the other side are just all the more precious. And God is more precious to us than he was before. Well, the psalm begins in the dust and depths with a convicted and guilty sinner. And it ends with the joy of salvation and praise and worship. The psalm was written so that we might be a people who pursue repentance and all the blessings of it rather than avoid repentance. 1 John 1, 9 in the New Covenant, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sins, beloved, ends in forgiveness and cleansing and singing. What a blessing. It's like God throwing the door wide open to us. Come to me, repent. Come to me, bring me your burdens. And if there are any here or any we know who've never repented of our sins to the Lord, I encourage you to fall down before the God of mercy, admitting your sin to him and trust in Christ for forgiveness of all your sins. There's nothing more joyous in all the world. Let's pray.